Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Okay, let's go. Let's do this. Here we go. We're on uh, another delightful step in our adventure through N.D. Wilson's canon. Right. And, step, step, uh, you know, we might do other things along the way, but right now I'm having a bunch of fun. So, I assume sure. I want to talk about that, Dandelion Fire. That being the end. Goal. We have in yes, mind. that's it. Brian needs to be having fun. If I'm having fun, then hopefully our listeners also. Today, we are talking about Dandelion Fire. Yes. Okay. And I think it's a great one as we're heading into summer. Yeah. Uh, it touches on many of the themes. So can you start out by explaining, is this something, this book, book two, um, you've described how it's the start or the second piece of what was originally going to be one book. Yep. But when when did you have the idea for the transformation or the second yeah. sight as kind of like the fundamental thing that this book is about? Uh, cool. Yeah. So that comes, I, I mentioned uh, Robert Kirk and the Celtic mythology around the seventh son. It's not just Celtic, but the seventh son and the second sight. Uh, that was there. That was there. And that was interesting to me ever since I read uh, uh, the appendices at, attached to an edition of Rob Roy. Weirdly. <laughs> weirdly. <Okay>. So <laughs> there was right. some appendices attached to the book Rob Roy, and it referred to this book called The Secret Commonwealth. And I went in there and I mentioned that Sir Walter Scott couldn't find an original copy of this. You know, I'd mentioned this before and that was a big part of it. And so in thinking through it in The Seventh Son and The Second Sight, I had decided I preferred the discovery, the coming of age, you know, like coming into your second sight, inheriting your second sight, which was kind of part of the mythology was that The Seventh Son inherits this power, this ability. Okay. So rather than it being from birth. Okay. Right. You know, it's not a, a baby, a toddler who can see the fairies, although that's funny. Uh, it is, <laughs> it, it gives you lots of potential for humor. It's not what I wanted to do. So I like the idea of this unexpected kid coming into an inheritance. And so that's where the, the that necessitates a transformation that necessitates uh, some form of transformation. Yeah. Um, and I wanted it to be natural magic if that makes sense meaning not manipulative it's inherited its authority and so one of the big discussions that that happens everywhere and as a side note for all you people out there who have liked me a lot and, and are ready to stop liking me one of my criticisms of the harry potter books <laughs> we do actually need to get deeper into this because <laughs> yeah. we've had so many questions yeah one of one of my criticisms there which and i enjoy the harry potter books and i'm grateful for them and you know i'm not kibitzing at all there, uh, is that she writes like somebody who does not believe in magic. Okay. Interesting. You and mean, you mean she kind of just, it feels like a plot device to you or not real? Yeah. It's a, it, this is, uh, you know, it's like somebody writing in a steampunk world. They don't actually think there's a steampunk world. Like, okay, here's this artificial thing I've created. That's fun. Wish fulfillment, escapism. It's, it's fun, but it's not something I think is going to tell you anything more about the real world. And like hmm. you're, not, you're not discovering more about this world. This art, this piece of art is not taking you deeper into the artistry of God. 
and the narrative of God. So, so is that connected with how she doesn't use magic for seeming things like that you would expect her to Harry Potter's broken glasses or, or something like that, where the magic at one, one hand can be used to do something cute and every day. And on the other hand can be used to do something murderous and huge, but there's no sense of scale between the two or no distinction. I think, I think the biggest tell is the fact that the, the moral line between her match, she has no like magical philosophy in the moral line between what makes a good curse and what makes a bad curse is as arbitrary as a speed limit. Okay. So there's, there's no intrinsic evil to this curse that's explained or understood. Oh, you know, so you think, you think about, uh, in Lord of the Rings power that comes from what versus power that comes from what you have two different fonts of power, right? Gandalf is not drawing his power from the same place, you know, that Sauron is. So, uh, Saruman is, and then abuses it and starts trying to pull, you know, power from this other source as well. For Saruman, it become it's all about authority and where the power comes from. So if you look at um, scripture and you look at this world, there are people with abilities. There's, there are people who have strange abilities, and I'm not talking about potion mixing or charms or stuff like that. I'm talking about historically. Uh, people who have historically been able to turn sticks into snakes, that kind of thing. And so given that, we live in a world where people can turn sticks into snakes. What is that? In your Bibles. Yeah. And, and, what's, the, and what's the source of the power? So when Moses does it, he's doing it with the authority to do it that has been granted to him. He's not doing it, seizing power. He's not stealing it. He's not manipulating it. He's not, he's, there's no conjuring trick to, you know, force the universe to do something, right? And there's no hack. And that's honestly a, 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 the way a lot of magic is treated is like, it's, it's a hack. Now this is not entirely true for Potter because she has this inheritance thing and there's, she dabbles with the Patronus and other stuff where she, she dabbles in sources of magic and natural gifting and things like that. But is it, is it by authority? Is it from God? You know, is it from, is it from God? Is it divine? And you are given it and tasked with it like Spider-Man, great power comes great responsibility. Like, is this been given to you for, to do a job and you must obey with it? Or are you seizing it and trying to grow in power out of personal ambition, et cetera? So with Dandelion Fire, I wanted to really clearly communicate that this is an inherited natural magic. This is somebody who has a magical ability the way the birds can fly. Right. Okay. It's baked into his design and this comes, you know, this comes to him in that way. So he grows into this and there's going to be something that touches him in nature, something he's going to see that identifies like the brand, the motif, the typology of his power. And it's going to be the first thing he really sees. So the first the first thing he really sees the true nature of and touches, he'll be branded by, and you know, and this will be his out his the outworking of his power. Um, yeah. type, typological representation of his power. Okay, but can we can contrast with Darius, I guess, as an example of someone yeah. so so Darius with similar things. Yep. Give us the pitch on Darius. I think is a very fun sort of fake yeah. character. So Darius with- is this villain, a sub-villain in Dandelion Fire, and his he's connected to fungus. So, you know, it's like this mushrooms are, but he thinks he's connected to oaks or yeah. wants to be connected yeah, to oaks, yeah. right? Okay. So he wants it to be this, he wants his typology to be big and magnificent and that his magic is the, the, the power of the oak tree. It's actually, you know, mushrooms that blow up overnight. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, so he's this little fungal, he's got this little fungal power, which is incredibly powerful and in which he is ashamed of, insecure about. 
but uh you know like that's so darius has this insecurity and you see that in multiple things about him like he's a terrible jawline and he uses his power to hide that to mask that to give himself a, a you know a, a nice jaw. big jaw he yeah. is this insecure manipulator and it's all grasping 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 henry sees a dandelion and he actually starts to see it it starts to kind of come apart in his vision where he can actually see this the word that is the dandelion this this the speech that is the dandelion so he's looking at the the thing that has been spoken but he's getting to see the work so he's kind of seeing god's work in creating this dandelion and he touches it you know it's like he reaches out can't stop himself and he touches it and burns his hand um and as a result as he comes into his powers as a green man as a seventh son the dandelion accurately reflects you know his potency and you you kind of highlight the theme of a dandelion as one of the more quick life cycles in the plant world both bright and ash at the same time and then starting over magically again yeah it's this little it's a phoenix yeah it's this it's this phoenix plant that burns bright and fast goes to ash and then is back yeah and you know and is back a thousand fold how do you feel about dandelions in your yard i have no problem feeding them to my tortoises (laughs) (laughs) there you go Uh, they love them so i actually haven't had real dandelion problems for a long time ever since my tortoises were spending this part of the year outside grazing because they they eat those dandelions down to nubbins. <laughs> hey, that's what I, I have need. a lot that's of clover. Awesome. I have a lot of clover because they don't like clover, but they they destroy the dandelions. Okay, so tortoises are bee friends. They get along yeah. well. Yeah, they are. So it's a. Uh, uh, I think that basically the biggest thing with this this transformation and, and Henry York coming into his his powers is I wanted it to be. Uh, like Moses. I wanted it to be like Elijah. I wanted it to be like a, a minor prophet. I wanted to communicate anti-wish fulfillment. Yeah. Okay. To be, explain to that. To be Moses, to be Elijah, to be Samson even, uh, really sucks. I mean, yeah. that is like, yeah. oh, bad news. Like bad news. You're the dude. You're the guy. So. Okay. I have a great counterpoint. And then as a side, as a side note, what that means is the standard you're held to is incredibly high. So Moses, the Israelites did a little bit of misbehaving in the wilderness. We, we all know this. There was a, there was a fair amount of right. misbehavior in the wilderness. Just a little idolatry, a little <laughs> yeah. Sabbath breaking. Yeah, little- <laughs> plenty. But even the ones who made it into the promised land, grumbling, all sorts of yeah. stuff. You know, so there's ones who didn't make it, right? Right. And there's plenty who made it to the promised land, but uh, did so. Still fell at the first hurdle, which I think is the Battle of Jericho. Yeah. Just lots and lots of sin. And Moses was not permitted. Because he struck a rock. Instead of speaking to it, right? Yep. He struck a rock. And so he was banned from the promised land. Like that is, that is heavy. You know, like that's a, it is really like to more light, more grace, more authority, a much higher bar. Yeah. Um, Which also tells you how intense the fall of David was, you know, King David. That's not that what David did was horrible for anybody, Uh, but to do it, you know, as the man after God's own heart. Yep is uh, a far more intense fall. Okay, but okay, we're, I just wanted to we're provide- We're wandering all over the place. Right, which is fun. This is going to make more people mad, maybe, but I think Aragon is a fantastic example of someone who does a transformation based on wish fulfillment. Because okay. if you remember the Aragon, or you may not remember, uh, Aragon as a book, which I do not enjoy, and I think is a ripoff of all of the flavor that we've talked about, as opposed to any of the substance, what he does is he has his main character have to become part elf 
in order to succeed because the, he's made the humans so weak that he mm. needs to level up and make his main character part of an elven. elf elven so that he can bond with the dragons and become the savior for this world and so when he becomes an elf he can, becomes faster smarter wiser better at fighting basically a whole a whole transfer transformative thing which when contrasted something you said earlier contrasted with henry as someone who touches a dandelion and gets down to the root of things i like yeah. that so much better because it it I was so irritated when Ar <laughs> when Aragon's character suddenly jumped species <laughs> <laughs> and leveled up, leveled and up suddenly, by jumping. Yeah. yeah, suddenly it had gotten his butt kicked over and over, and finally leveled up and was able to defeat the bad guys. And I thought, this isn't nice. This is not how <laughs> stories work, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least not well. Right. Um, and as a, a little asterisk right there, um, I'll say of Aragon and a lot of other books, I have no opinion because I kind of made a habit of not reading the books of authors that i had to do events with oh okay you know and it was just so i don't actually i have no opinion i mean i do i don't i do i don't you can but let it's, you um, can let me just maintain the message so the, the big thing is because i just after the first time i had to do a big event with a bunch of authors i found that it was much easier for me to say i'm so sorry i have no i haven't read your book because authors have this weird I don't know what it is about us. I don't do it, <laughs> but I don't know what, what, where it comes from. There's a weird desire to ask people, did, did you read my book? And what did you think? And Even when don't ask questions, you don't want the answer to yeah, it, I you, guess should be know, the rule. And so it was much easier for me just to say, go fight, win, go team random house, you know, go team Kanoff. Let's go do events together. Yeah, that'll be fun. And I really liked Chris. Chris is a nice kid. He's not a kid anymore, but he was a nice kid. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was just much simpler. So it was much simpler to just not form the opinion. There you go. Well, um, I won't make you push into that. <laughs> and so, but that is the, that's, so there's a fair amount of like contemporary stuff that was coming out. Anything that was coming out in the same season I was coming out in, uh, I, I was dropping a book in the same moment and we, I knew we were going to be at events together. Um, I just didn't read any of it. Yeah. And it made it very easy. Although I did, I will confess once, sign a bunch of copies of Moon Over Manifest. Uh, for prize winners of a 100 cupboards writing contest in the state of Florida, um, because Random House failed to get my books there, <laughs> and so all the winners showed up, and they were supposed to like have lunch with me, and we're gonna hang out, and I'm gonna sign copies for them, and then the people came over and they opened all the boxes from Random House, and they were was the wrong the, book. The, the Newberry winner in Moon Over Manifest, and I was like, well, they asked me if I could just inscribe these copies <laughs> for these kids. Which I then did. Cool. And immediately afterwards, found myself at a festival uh, at a table with the author uh, at another event. Yeah. And sitting next to her. And I, I told her, I was like, so here's the thing. I need to, I need to make a true confession. She, I signed your books. Yeah, she was, she was awesome about it. But anyway, as far as Daniel and Fire goes, I think I want to write like somebody who believes in prophets and I believe in magic and I believe that there's evil magic. And I think there is holy power. I think there is such a thing as a holy as holy power in the world, and I think you can inherit it. It can be given to you. It has functioned in the world often, New Testament and old. Wherever you land on the cessation of gifts and all that kind of stuff, you know where I I think that was an early church thing. I don't think it's normal um, for a person to be vested with power, you know, special powers. I don't think that's really a thing now, uh, but they. You know, a, a common thing. I don't think that's the the mode of God's operation at this point. 
but it has been a mode of operation in the world for thousands of years and has been used for thousands of years. And when I write, I want to write like this is the world. And so Henry's transformation in Dandelion Fire and the foil I create with the character of Darius to show the, you know, the other approach. Uh, okay. Sort of the, the other so approach. So a similar to sort of, maybe a similar method, but they're doing opposite things with it or a similar use of the words at the core of the so universe. So I, I have kind of a double foil situation where I've got Darius who has the same kind of power that Henry has, but he is uh, like a trust fund kid abusing it, uh, ashamed, ashamed of it, ashamed of the, the honesty of it, the way it reflects him, uh, masking it, morphing it, like just not, not owning it, not receiving it and not getting a return on it. And as a villain, as a result, but then there's the, you know, Nemione, the actual witch queen who her entire mode of operation and drawing power is drinking life dry. So she, yeah. she consumes the life force of things around her grass, bees, doesn't matter anything. Yeah. She drains it and then moves on like a tick. Yeah. And when Henry draws power from what's around him afterward, there are more dandelions. There's not dead dandelions. The dandelions explode and he explodes. Like he, yeah. you know, it is this, this mutual thing that builds. So he gets a return on it. The dandelion reflects him because it is this little phoenix weed, you know, that, that goes, goes, yeah. burns, goes, and can grow anywhere, explodes through sidewalk cracks, you know, can't be kept down. Um, and it's very small and not big and fancy. I didn't want it to be this big lofty, inheritance like it turns out here comes some amazing mythical creature from the sky that is your your totem and you're super special it's like no here's a weed that's in every kid's yard in the world and i wanted to i wanted to use one that would be virtually everywhere in the world that every kid who read the story could go look at a dandelion yeah and really look at it and and think about it differently okay so you also have this key scene where henry is cruciform Yep. And I think gets wine, right? Gets a bit of uh, vinegar, wine vinegar yep. put in his mouth of some sort. Is there a sense in which you see what happens in your story as something that's going to that's going to happen in every Christian or every kid's life? This sort of death and death and resurrection scene or what are, what kind of are you doing with such an uh, overt symbol like that? Uh, the same the same thing that God is doing all the time. Um because 100% of my readers will have a death scene. Yeah. So it's, you know, they're going to have one and there is a resurrection on the other side. So the question is who you image and how you face it. And as part of that, we all get little micro deaths. There's constant deaths. The yeah. person we were last year is gone. I just got my gallbladder out and I'm now <laughs> different. That last version of me is now in the grave. Oh, and I've done that with brain surgery too. It's like, it's, there's all these moments where you, you lay things down and things die, phases die. Uh, and you, you know, the phase you, of Nate with a gallbladder <laughs> yeah, is over. It's over. <laughs> it's over. And so, and it's still in the grave and I came out. Yeah. But you do the, those little image, those little images are baked in. It happens every night. Every single kid lays down and goes to sleep in the darkness. And every morning there's a resurrection. And every Sunday, and like it happens on a weekly basis and it happens on a nightly basis and it happens on an annual basis. And it just winter, spring, like it just, God baked it in 
in such a looping, repetitive way that I want to highlight that with with pieces where every every death for for a believer, every death for somebody faithful should look a certain way, you know, and it shouldn't be panicked and selfish and terrified. It needs to be cruciform. Um, So every death of a hero should look a little like Samson, which is to say cruciform hands out, hands up, you know, like that's, and that's the way of it. That's great. um, And so that's, that's what I have with, uh, that's what I have going with Henry there. And I make it, I learned from what Lewis said. And so I just try to make stuff obvious enough that people don't miss it, but have enough layers that once they've been alerted, like once you've like woken up their nerve endings to look for typology, they'll find a lot more, but, yeah. uh, yeah, you know, but you have to kind of put, be a little on the nose right? so that they start hunting yeah. for those Easter eggs. It's also in Dandelion Fire is I pull in this christening scene when, when Henry York right. receives his true name, he like, I have an actual baptism, <laughs> like <laughs> here's a, here's a christening. But the reason why I did that is because back to the Robert Kirk secret Commonwealth mythology, he warned people that that character warned people that he, the fairies were coming for him and they wanted to take him. He was going to get pulled off into the other plane, you know, into this second sight ville. And then he disappeared. And so there's a, there's a hill in Scotland where they say, this is where Robert Kirk vanished, but he wrote the book. He was a, he was this Presbyterian pastor, seventh son, wrote the book. And then vanished after warning people that this was going to happen. He came to his wife in a dream and cause she was pregnant when he disappeared and said that the only magic that couldn't hold him, that couldn't hold like that would break fairy magic was the christening of his, of his kid. And so the story goes that he warned her when he walks into the house, he's like, he will be able to pass through the christening because he has, he, they can't keep him from that she has to throw a knife over his head. Like when he walks in the christening, that was the dream. He then walked into the christening. He did in fact walk into the christening, according to all the witnesses there, everybody froze up and panicked and he walked through and then walked out the back door and was never seen again. They didn't throw the knife. Didn't throw the knife. Oh man. And so that was, it was this wild little Celtic story. And I was like, okay, I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull these themes in, steal from Robert Kirk. Yeah. So Henry um, needs to be christened because the warp spasm, as you call it, can kind of go two directions. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so he's, um, Henry is being christened. He's being, he's at this point in Dandelion Fire, he's found his true family, he's found his origin and has to receive, you know, st- enter that family yeah. and enter into his actual identity, which is associated with his second sight, his status as a seventh son. Yeah. You know, it's like an, an heir to his father. Yeah. And there has to be a christening. And so, so I, I just. I really liked pulling that in. That I, so. I like it too. Thanks. That's fun. Okay. I have a choose your own adventure option. Okay. We can either talk more deaths as <sighs> in jumping over to Harry Potter and talk Harry Potter death, or we can go talk about one of my favorite aspects of Dandelion Fire, which is the grouchy declining Fitzferrin in the ruins of their nation. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, what, what exactly you enjoyed about that? Because uh, clearly you did. Yeah, you know, this this sibling rivalry going back to hundreds of years. <laughs> you know, Eli making fun of his sister for having a goat and being a queen. You know. <laughs> Anyways, choose your People, own adventure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll do a little bit of both, and I'll say that um, another one of the most frequent questions that comes to me. Oh, uh, there's not, not the other thing. Uh, I'll just I'll do. A, I'm going to hit a bunch of stuff real quick, and then we can we do can it. elaborate on some. I use the the 
arrow of chance and Danny Landfire as a, you know, the arrow fired at random that slew a king. Mm. Um, I use that as a sort of a, a totem, a relic of power that, that comes out. It's another Old Testament thing. Uh, I really start to unpack how Middle Eastern, how much I didn't want this story to be a Northern European fable. You know, I like, I love Lewis and I love Northern European fantasy, but this was very Middle Eastern. Yeah. You know, it's like Henry, it turns out is, you know, named after Judah Maccabee. And there's this Jewish Old Testament-y vibe that I, I pull through the whole thing uh, with names like Mordecai and, you yeah. know, and, and I, it's obviously in a more, you know, it's merged. I'm, I'm pulling it up using a lot of Northern uh, alternate world stuff too, but I wanted to really camp there. So there's Old Testament relics. That's all part of pointing to the prophets and the way magic functions and the right. way magic should actually function. He didn't, Henry didn't find a charm book where he learned if he holds his hand a certain way, he can manipulate the universe into doing tricks. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's right. He's discovering that he is an heir uh, in a, you know, in a particular lineage. And that lineage includes, you know, great Old Testament heroes. You know, that's kind of the, the world in which he lives. One of the most frequent questions I get asked is why I like to repeat names. Hmm. And so I have Uncle Frank and then I have Fat Frank, um, Frank Fat Fairy. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and then I have Henry in, in Henry, Kansas, and I have Henrietta. And part of this is just personal amusement. And part of this is because this is the way it is in the world. As you know, we have three Bryans working at, yeah. at Canon. Yeah. This is, we do this in life. We do it in so, triplicate. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to, but that's, that's something that I have been asked recently and I have been asked so many times over the years, but, but some of it is like with Henry and Henrietta, Henrietta is the other side of the same coin. Mm. So they, they represent, you know, two different ways to be flawed and two different ways to be faithful. Yeah. But kind of coming from a very similar place. So they both become more and more similar. Yeah. They're a Mark and Jane approach to kids fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And so they are, um, but they're becoming more alike as they both grow. But Fat Frank, I just thought it was funny to have a second Frank and to have him be Fat Frank. And it turns and out- And a fairy. Yeah, <laughs> Franklin Fat Fairy. So you have Francis, Uncle, you know, you, you, know, yeah. you have Francis, and then you have Franklin, but they're both, you know, Frank. Those, are, those are different names. Uncle Frank and Fat Frank. But uh, then to your, your point, like the Fitzferrin is the decay of civilization when it's built around manipulation and power grabbing it just always devolves uh, see in, in i knew pettiness. that i knew there was some reason that <laughs> the fitzferrin felt like america right now <laughs> yes <laughs> i just thought i thought you know normally you'd be grabbing you'd want to grab from our world our world would feel like the place but i right. thought we i feel weirdly at home in this <laughs> destroyed fitzferrin place where eli's making bacon in in a tiny destroyed house <laughs> I thought, this is where we are. (laughs) Yes. What we need to do is just thank God for our bacon and (laughs) move on. But yeah, it's one of the ways to make the fantasy fantasy worlds real is to make them, well, it's it's, it's just say, make them real. Uh, Characters, flawed characters will burn bridges over very, very petty things. Things will fall apart. Bitterness, like bitterness is there. Pettiness is there. And it, it is comic and sad. It's it's both tragic and amusing. And I did it with the Fitzferrin because there's, it's one degree removed. A, it enables me to do it in a way that does not, is not as distressing for kids. Because if I do it with humans, and I really show that with humans, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an Oscar movie and it's pretty stressful. Uh, 
but doing it with the Fitzfarren makes it kind of comic. It's a little bit comedy, but also reveals the nature of bitterness. And a kid can read it and just be like, just stop. Like, yeah, just say you're sorry. You know, like yeah. just, just be done. Right. Um, and then the age allows you to do that too. When you let yeah. them live for so long, we can see it played out over time. Yeah. 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 So they're very old and they're still being just petulant. Right. Dummies. Yeah. The worst aspects of Henry and Henrietta. Yeah. You can see that. Say, let's, let's let this weed grow for a couple hundred years and see what happens. So that's why I did it there. Uh, but also because it provides a kind of realism to that fantasy. So authors have a tendency to enter into a fantasy world and then to make it nothing like a real world at all. Mm. Uh, you know, like it's like watching a period movie where they forget that people were, would be dirty if you're bathing once a month. You know, like it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, you know, I just showed my kids a couple episodes of Downton Abbey and I was sitting here and my kids are like, they all have perfect teeth. Right. You know, perfect teeth. And when did maids start like plucking their eyebrows like this? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's so yeah of its moment now. it's manicured yeah yeah and they did such a meticulous job recreating this moment in time from early 20th century and yet it's still people from right now you know playing dress ups they couldn't resist spit shining everything yeah because it's like well that would be the current audience would fail to connect with that person if that person has bad teeth like we will just judge them if they don't have orthodonture and so and, so, <laughs> and they're right and if like if she has big bushy eyebrows, it's gonna be weird unless big bushy eyebrows are in right now. And so they we have all these fads from the exact moment that will enable a global audience to attach and sympathize with the character dressed up in the accoutrement of the period. Mm. So when we do it in fantasy, we hop over into fantasy and then animals don't smell all of a sudden. And the streets aren't that dirty. And all the good guys are entirely noble. Maybe. Right. And, and the, yeah, there's yeah. no flaws and there's no pettiness. And you also have, uh, and I could throw another little, we'll talk about hunger games at some point, but a complete misunderstanding about how society functions as an organism, of mm. uh, like what causes dissension and people, how people, humanity collectively function, you know, where their alliances go and, and so on. So the Fitzfarren are all there to, it's there to provide realism, the pettiness, the decay, the rot is there to provide reality to the fantasy it's there also with one degree of separation so i can actually kind of explore the long-term rot of rivalry and pettiness and envy you know the destructiveness of envy yeah and also because i find it really funny <laughs> <laughs> so and, and i enjoyed writing that stuff deaths you want to talk about deaths too yeah uh the question being so you talk about how each christian death is christ-like is cruciform in some way yeah. Um, that gets a, what's Should the, be. yeah. What's the pause? Do people overdo the, this is a Christ-like death thing? Is that something we need to worry about when you're, I find, I sometimes find people reading a story and every death becomes Christ-like, but then because we're reading Lord of the Rings, I guess, and Gandalf is a, a figure who dies and comes yep. back bright white. Is it, what is Rowling doing with the end of her? Well, I think she's absolutely playing with Christian typology there. And the, the thing is that she does, I think she believes in that. And it's far more compelling than her use of magic because she actually, you know, the magic for her is entirely make-believe and this isn't. Yeah. So I think that she, she believes in sacrificial death and she believes to her, whatever extent her, you know, her, I don't know, strain of Anglicanism allows, she believes in 
resurrection, at least as a concept, if not as a historical event. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know where she lands on the historicity of the resurrection, but given that the archbishop doesn't really care, um, yeah, you know, it's, I think that's, it is compelling and I think it works in Potter. I, the, the stuff that I don't like is like, no, you can't say that curse because it's a bad curse. Right. It's like, that's like, you can't use a gun against the Nazis because that's a bad gun. Hmm. You know, it's like, okay, like what, what made it right? Bad? So she has those three, like the one that controls other people. Yeah. The one that tortures other people and the one that kills other well, people. The one that calls, causes pain, one right. that controls and, um, and so you would say there should be, there are obviously situations where good yeah. guys must do all three of those things. Yeah. So you don't think there's any sort of evil in using, and using, say, the imperious curse, right, you know, jumping yeah. into her universe. Exactly, exactly. And it's because she doesn't do the philosophical work behind it. To explain why. Yeah. And it doesn't have to all be on the page. You know, it's, it's a kid's book, but like George Lucas did a better job in terms of. Oh, the force. Yeah. And it's like, okay, we can find it Manichaean and we can disagree with it and think it's wrong, but it is a coherent worldview for his version of evil and his version of good. And why Darth Vader's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, there's this, there's this struggle of two different types of power. Now he doesn't explain why one is good and why one is bad. And they did, then the whole thing breaks down when you don't know, there's no reason to know which one's which. There's no higher authority that judges between them. They're just two right. opposing forces. But at the, at the very least, there's a coherence to the dark side. Uh, whereas this is don't drive 55 and a 45. Okay. Uh, so you that's think- That's not a moral boundary that really works for the collision of worlds. <laughs> yeah. So you think it's something that you really want to connect where and what the motivation of their magic is for. Because I guess I guess Voldemort, we're so used to thinking of him as a bad guy because he looks like a bad guy. Yeah, because he's he's you know snaky, right? And but has no so, nose. But then so is Harry, snaky, right. right? And so the difference that Rowling would make between the two would be, wouldn't it be that manipulation one? No, it'd be it'd be personal gain. She's doing yeah. kind of like the basic Marvel, yeah, Marvel movie thing: power and control versus defending the helpless. And I think that's all, okay. that's all great. As right. far as the boundaries of the actual divide between the sides go, it yeah. makes total sense. You just want the philosophy behind it to match up. Yeah. It's like one it side does. says, we will not use a machine gun. Yeah. Black powder, muzzle loaders only. And Voldemort says, ha ha ha. Right. I, I use 30 round clips. Yeah. Mags. Sorry for all you gun people. Well, there's that weird, <laughs> yeah. There's that weird part where uh, I think Harry uses the spell that Snape has that Snape invented sectum sempra or something yeah. and it slices somebody and everybody's kind of on the boundary of, I think that's a bad spell, but I'm not sure. Like, is that what just happened? Apparently we're only allowed to stun people, but if they die on accident, you know, cause you stun, yeah. stun them out of the sky or something like that. Yeah. Maybe, you I, knocked them off their broomstick. Right. But in any way it's interesting. Okay. So if, and it would not have been hard, it would not have been hard. There's and, and her, I benefit from her success. I, I benefit a great deal from her success. Yeah. Her creation of a fantasy readership. Yeah. And even, and well, the ways in I, which yeah. the type, the ways in which the typology is clearly Christian also created an appetite for that. And I think it's Harry Potter is just, I think it's just a net plus. And I, you know, and that I should say that too. I just reread it again recently and enjoyed it even more than I thought I was going to, but yeah, that's where this fun. is critique coming from. It's because yeah. it's fun. I think that's what it's we good, do. It's good fun. But the thing is, 
when something is good, good fun, and then has massive cultural impact, it like everything else, it's going to get held to a higher standard. And yeah. so if, if Harry Potter had sold 10 million copies and been, you know, a, a blowout summer bestseller and that had been it, you know, like that, that's one kind of uh, popcorn meal, but it actually has been so potent and so effective and it has, it gets a, it gets a stake treatment. It's getting that, it's getting that Lord of the Rings treatment. It's getting Lewis, it's getting Tolkien treatment. Uh, and the fact is Lewis and Lewis and Tolkien nod, we're all human. They they make, they make mistakes. Yeah. Um, there are gaps in Lord of the Rings that should have been filled. And it's funny to me that they weren't. I don't understand why he didn't do it. And I think there are significant- And we've had episodes about that. So we're not being yeah. unfair. And I love Tolkien and I love Lewis and I really enjoyed Harry Potter. So these, these comments, these thoughts, like these are things that I think would make the series significantly more potent if she had done. If there was a clear binary behavior, either, and I think a more biblical approach, obviously, than the Manichaean dark side is to have that there is a, a power source, there is actually you know, a divine source, and then there is a, you know, the manipulation and the taint and the brokenness that can be used this way, or it can be used this other way. Lewis did this in Magician's Nephew by representing walking through the gate to get the apple for somebody not yourself, or climbing over the wall to eat it for yourself. And he, that's where he boils the entire thing down. Like, you can go get the fruit of life, but are you going to steal it? Because if you take it for you, it's stealing. If you're taking it for somebody else, you can take it freely. Walk through the gate and do it. Mm. Um, and so the witch climbs the wall for her, you know, and eats it. And then, you know, the kids go through the gate and take the, take the fruit for another. And so that's how Lewis represents it. And he, he boils it down that, that way. So with Dandelion Fire, to circle back, that's what I wanted to do. Henry York inherits something and he, he has to steward it and he has to get a return on it. Darius inherits something and he is abusing it. Yeah. Nemione is stealing and consuming and devouring. Mm -hmm. like, you know, she's just that devourer. Yeah. So, and that's, uh, man, we've wandered yeah. hither, hither and yon, but I think we've kind of covered Daniel and Fire. I like, it's one of my, I, I would say it's one of my favorites, but I, I do like them all. I can't really, I, as soon as I start listing off my favorites, I, I just list off my books. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one that I, there's things I really love about every different project I've been allowed to work on. So that's this, this one was the big jumbo meat to the original single volume of 100 Cupboards. And I pulled basically 100 Cupboards and Dandelion Fire. That combined length was about the length of the original manuscript. Oh, wow. And then, uh, so I added, Henry is blind for quite a while in, in Dandelion Fire. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, you really feel it. You, you're like, oh, I want him just to see. <laughs> just see. Uh, so then I had to, when I split everything up, I, I tore off some chapters, some sections for Chestnut King. And that, that was sort of like a starter dough. You know, I probably had like three or four chapters that showed up over there. And then I wrote new chapters for the, the beginning of Dandelion Fire. Yeah, the, the setup and everything is as it. Of Dandelion Fire or 100 Cupboards? Dandelion Fire. Gotcha. Uh, and I wrote some new stuff for 100 Cupboards as well. Cause that needed its own rise and fall. Right. Um, cause cupboards was just a rise. Uh, cause it was the act one. Of your book. Like, yeah. And so it needed its own release. And so I, I wrote new stuff at the end of cupboards, a little bit at the beginning, uh, then a ton of editing. And then, uh, Daniel and fire new chapters at the beginning, 
lost a bunch of chapters that went into book three. Um, but it's, it's the, uh, it's the original like act two beating heart of that single volume. Is gotcha. this book. That's great. Okay. Well, I think we're done. You know, people need to keep asking questions. They need to ask, send them along. I've got a, a few. I didn't have any specific ones for Dandelion Fire besides the one that we touched on already. So. I got a lot. So I think I hit everything. Great. That's awesome. So there we go. And next time, Chestnut King. And then Chestnut King. On. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Perfect. All righty. Peace out. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories of Soul Food podcast. If you're someone highly invested in kid fiction and finding the best stories for your kids and you haven't downloaded the Canon app, I want to encourage you to download and subscribe today. You can find things on there such as Christine Cohen's The Winter King, Ethan Nicole's Brave Ollie Possum, Peter Lightheart's Wise Words, a book on Narnia from Douglas Wilson titled What I Learned in Narnia, and much, much more. Download the app today wherever you get your apps and subscribe.